Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. I'm a global HXM advisor at SAP. And I'm Simon Humphreys. I'm a solution architect at SAP. So Simon, we're going to be discussing on this episode the relativity of success and finding your inner giant, which is actually quite a broad title uh, for the topic that we are going to um, to be covering. So let's focus in on our objectives for today. You know, what are you looking forward to discussing with our guest today? Two two great guests. I'm really looking forward to the, to hearing from John. Uh, I follow John, uh, and I've listened to many of his uh, talks, and I, I follow him on LinkedIn and his uh, little sound bites and snippets that he posts on there, as well, of course, with reading his books. But I'm really interested in what does he mean by the inner giant? What what does that really mean, and how do we tap into that, and how does that surface? So, you know, hearing about that and, and understanding the context of that, I think, is going to be really interesting. But then also hearing from Mikhail uh, and his leadership perspective of how SAP is doing a transformational change as well. So I think this will be very interesting to get those two differing, but hopefully complementary points of view. Yeah, because I think we're going to touch on culture a little bit today, um, because that really is the bedrock of, you know, what is driving success and sustainable success. So I'm looking forward to getting the views of of both John and Mikhail on the importance of culture, but what does it actually mean today in this changing context? And then, and then also then looking at it from the perspective of the individual, you know, whether you're talking about the great resignation or the great realization or the great departure, you know, what is the perspective of the individual in relation to that in terms of their expectations and their thoughts? So I, I think this is going to be very rich as a conversation and very much looking forward to it. We are absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast two very special guests. Firstly, if I can introduce John Amici, OBE. John is an organizational psychologist and founder of APS Intelligence. John was awarded an OBE for services to sport and voluntary sector. He's a chartered scientist, elected fellow of the Royal Society for Public Health, best-selling New York Times author and research fellow at the University of East London. He is also a mentor to many, teacher to some, and always using his deep psychological insight combined with real-life experience to provide a touchstone for people and companies who want to thrive, achieve, and align their beliefs, values, and ethics. He's also a dad, a brother, an uncle from Stockport, a product of the statement, the most unlikely of people in the most improbable of circumstances can become extraordinary. He's passionate about Star Wars, is a self-confessed nerd and geek, a former MBA sportsman, has a voice like honey, is transported by music, and loves nothing more than to eat decadent foods that are bad for him, especially donuts. Our second guest is Mikkel Verhoeven. Mikkel is the Managing Director of SAP UK and Ireland. With over 25 years of experience in growing technology sales and services organizations, Mikkel is a trusted advisor to clients and board members pursuing digital transformation to differentiate their competitive 
strategy and improve internal capabilities. Mikhail is passionate about people development and growth, as well as SAP's commitment to social entrepreneurship and sustainability. Having been a member of the Board of Advisors for Impact Investment Exchange and SAP executive sponsor for the One Billion Lives Social Entrepreneurship Program. Mikel has been with SAP for the past seven years, working in sales and services roles, and prior to that, spent eight years at Microsoft. Most recently, Mikel was responsible for leading services across Asia Pacific and Japan while establishing the Global Services Business Office and has been UK and Ireland Managing Director of SAP uh, since July 2020. He leads the 5,000-strong UK and Ireland team executing SAP's UKI growth strategy with a focus on delivering customer success and innovation in the region together with SAP's ecosystem partners. So welcome to the podcast, John, and welcome to the podcast, Mikel. We're delighted to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. So this, this episode is titled The Relativity of Success and finding your inner giant. So let me just take a pause and put that into context. So as we continue to adapt to the changing conditions created by the pandemic, a raging debate is taking place on what the world of work should look like. Is it virtual? Should we all return to the office? Is it something in between? Now that debate will rage for some time. The other major debate raging is less about where we work, but how we work. The sheer impact of the pandemic has created a pendulum shift in what is important to people today when it comes to work. Our expectations and our preferences have been changing for some time, but the spotlight is now firmly fixed on how we create the future of work, both physically and culturally. In this episode, we are going to explore some of these questions from a couple of perspectives. Firstly, how are organizations reimagining their workforce proposition, ranging from evaluating the ex workplace experience, bringing in new leadership models, and how success is measured. But we will also look at the question through the eyes of the individual. We have seen the very best of the human spirit over the last few years with amazing contributions from all walks of life looking to make a difference, big and small. Despite great adversity, the will from people to make a difference and to achieve something will never die. There are many problems to solve and people are willing and wanting to step up. How we work in the future will be different. Old structures will be different. And we need to look very differently at how organizations will succeed by truly leveraging the individual contributions and brilliance of all employees. It is a huge topic. It's a massive debate. And, and I think what's really crucial as we come through the pandemic is the world of work does need a refresh. And what I hope that we're going to discuss today is some of those insights, some of those thoughts, some of those reflections. But Mikel, I know we're going to be touching on as well in the conversation today, the work that you're leading at SAP UK in Ireland, which is a cultural transformation. So let's take a step back and a bit of a scene set, if, if I may. And I want to ask you both, and I'll start with you, John. What is your current perception of the world of work and business and engagement and how we're sort of harnessing the, the talents and the brilliance? You know, what's your sort of uh, reflection and scene set, if I may? So I think I have a, 
what will be seen as a rather strident and difficult take on this in that everything that I see, not, that's not fair, but in many of the, the, the missives and the rhetoric of leaders in the, in the world of work, there is this rush to get back to a normal. That's what they want. They want to get back to normal. You've got people, I think it's quite embarrassing actually, talking about offices as if they are disconnected from the way we work talking about, oh, we should all be back in the office. And, and my question, you know, why validate that? What I see is this amazing way that we have, through rose-tinted glasses, reinvented the past as if before the pandemic, collaboration was anything more than watching a senior person in front of a whiteboard and being dared to offer your challenge or disagreement. You know, colorful offices and free bananas and coffee stations does not make performance success. People do that. Leaders with better skills and different skills than they demonstrated in the past. And that's what I want to see. If every leader made it so that they were so compelling, and I mean challenging and difficult and tough, but also empathetic and collaborative, that you would make it so that I would commute for you. But if you just want me to listen to you be brilliant, then I can do that from home. And so the new world of work is an opportunity for leaders to either be the absolute attractant for major talent or be the reason why right now across America and indeed mainland Europe, there is the great departure going on. Yo, I mean, that's a scene set and a half. Mikkel, I'm going to ask for your thoughts and opinions, you know, leading the SAP UK Island business as the, the managing director. Your thoughts on the as is, Mikkel. Yeah, I like what John said about the free bananas. Don't create great outcomes. Um, we have a, a restaurant where we feed people free lunches, John. But I can tell you something that in a software company, we are very used to have a distributed workforce that works with IP. And IP is in people's heads and in their fingers on keyboards. And it's in systems that are far removed from where you physically are. So for us, it is wonderful to experience that customers now trust the products and the people behind this software a whole lot more than previously because it works. It's been proven to work. It's been remotely delivered. And it's great, created outcomes that matter, be that in commerce situations and transactions, be that employee engagement with uh, HR solutions, be that in finance transactions of consolidating across the world, right? So we've seen very positive engagement as a result. I, I like what you put as a challenge on the reality of the offices. In the UK, we have about 11 offices and I have a real question mark. And I came in a year and a half ago as a new MD coming into the UK from Singapore of all places. And I'm originally Dutch. So the first question is why do we need 11 offices and who are the people? And you cannot get to know the people through virtual only. So we created a need to meet each other, to do exactly what you said, which is what are people saying? Are we actually listening to them? I mean, it's very simple. An office should be a place where you listen to others, where you empathize with each other and you get stuff done. And it's not only there that you can get it done, but when you're together, that collaboration has to be more than just a feeling, right? It has to yield an outcome. I'm a very outcome-oriented person. 
Um, so maybe I say that too often, but I think it really matters. So that's my uh, opening, uh, Michael. No, thank you. And, and Michaela, this word outcome, though, I think that actually taps into the human spirit. I, I genuinely, genuinely believe, and we're going to talk today about success and the relativity of it. I think every individual innately wants to achieve. They want to make a difference. They you know, want to achieve an outcome. But whatever the outcome is, relative to who they are. That's my opinion. But anyway, let's just take a pause then again and look at then this shift, this change, and, and the word culture, if I may. John, you just referenced the great departure. I've heard, obviously, the great resignation. Somebody else said to me the great realization, which I quite liked, actually. I really did like that because I think it is a realization. Now, culture has always been crucial to organization success taking COVID and pandemic into account, why do we believe that culture has come to the fore so much? And if I can start with you, John, on that question. Not entirely due to uh, COVID, because even prior to COVID, people talked a lot about culture. But the, the reason that it's come into such focus is because all you have to do is go on any company's website. Uh, you know, I, I worked with SAP before and I, I did the same thing. I went onto your website. I looked in your careers page, looked on your values page. And there's your culture on display. And, and not kind of esoterically, but explicitly. Phrases like your manager will take an interest in your career. With such a simple, easy phrase, right? very attractive to your brilliant graduates. And this is not just about SAP, obviously, it's about everybody does this. But what people fail to understand is the cascade of implications beneath that. You can't be a utilization culture alone if you're going to take interest in people's careers because that doesn't that won't count. You have to actually create time for people. Then you have to build skills in individual managers, not just the top tier, but everybody in order to be able to deliver the kind of coaching environment, developmental environment that people are promised. This is, these are the promises of giants, right? This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the promises that, that these are the promises that people make. That's why culture's in strong relief now, because during the pandemic, what happened there is most corporations added heart because they started talking about their colleagues, not just as widgets of productivity, but as human beings filled with fear and anxiety and worry and mourning. And they talked about the obligation of every leader and every colleague to support each other. And once a person has been seen as a human being, they aren't gonna go back to being a widget of productivity. So these are now skills that must be maintained by leaders and organizations forever. This is the culture, the experience, it's the, that's the promise that we're trying to fulfill here, I think. And that's why culture is in such sharp relief. That's why people are leaving, by the way, because they are seeing the promises made and they are juxtaposing them against the experience they have. And again, it's not often with, there are, there are senior leaders out there who are truly, they live it. But the problem is they have four or five or six direct reports. And the people we're talking about who are leaving they have mid-level mid managers who have other priorities, it seems. That's why culture's in stark relief, because it's being juxtaposed with experience. On our last episode, we were very grateful to talk with uh, David Williams, who's the founder and CEO of Impact International. And we were talking about the future role of the leader. And he was touching on many of those points around how are we actually skilling our leaders? How are we giving them the capability? How are we giving them the, the awareness. And that isn't just a one hit, and it isn't at one level, it's at all levels. 
Mikel, we're going to come on and talk shortly about, obviously, the cultural transformation that you're leading and initiated at SEP. Could you just share some of your thoughts about why a cultural reset is important and what do you see as some of the drivers for that, building on, building on John's thoughts? Maybe a bit of context. Like, like I said, I, I'm a Dutchman coming into the UK and in Ireland, and I'm a foreigner. I need to learn and listen first before I judge. And yes, I observe things. But one of the things I heard from many customers uh, that are SAP customers is not just happiness and satisfaction, right? Maybe some very strong opinions to the counter of that. And I heard similar voices from employees. And that was quite disconcerting to me because it, it means that we haven't responded to the needs of the audiences that we serve. We serve our employees. We, what John just said about that connection with the person, you've made that through empathy, but then there's a promise you make you need to deliver on. What I found when I started was there would be many promises made that weren't upheld, if you want. And with customers, that's a very big red flag and you need to respond to it as an organization. So that is the driver for it. The second is, I would say, I, I noticed that there were many people who felt that there were many managing directors prior to me with different track records and everybody goes and hires their own people. So what you get is no flow in the organization from that moment that you say, my manager cares about me, there's progress, there's development, there's promotion, there's a path. I felt disenfranchised employees that said, you only care what happens at the top and that's it. And I personally take that to heart, like that's not me as a person, I need to do something. And of course, the third one is we need an aspirational culture of growth because we're in a company that's in a transition to become a cloud software company. And that's a massive transition and that requires a services mindset to all that we do. So not I do deals, but I have a continuous journey of servicing people and the products have become services, right? So those three drivers are the foundation for the culture change that we needed to embrace. Brilliant. One of the questions I wanted to ask today is the ingredients that really matter today from an experience standpoint, but also what really matter from a cultural. So, so John, going back to the, you know, were people um, feeling after the pandemic that did they want to go back? You know, were the promises made? Um, one of the big aspects for me is psychological safety. I, I think more than ever, um, and and this is a great this is a great story that that you tell also, John, that there's a time where you got into a, a taxi and the, uh, the the driver was, you know, ahead of the game. And basically he said, POB, passenger on board, and uh, effectively was saying, I I've got you, right? You know, I've got you. And I think for me, that sort of epitomizes safety, that psychological safety, that the organization's got me, right? I, I, I feel good here, feel safe here. Um, so I just want to ask a sort of a, a, a follow-up question to sort of touch on, you know, how therefore then is it being redefined over and above the skills and the leadership piece? How is culture being redefined to take into account those expectations, preferences, and dare I say it, needs of the employee? And if I can start with you, uh, John. There's a lot of shifts that are changing. And again, this is one of those things where I said at the beginning about the fact that culture and building are, are part of the same, they are intersected, right? It's not just whether you're in the office, it's how you're using the office and what nature, what's the nature of it. 
this is the same thing with the future being redefined because what we know is there are shifts happening that have been happening that are now accelerated. So we are moving from uh, a transactional resource management approach to workplaces to an authentic people leadership approach. And the moment you do that, you realize there is a starkly different set of characteristics required for the individual managers and indeed the behavior of colleagues in those different environments. Because when we talk about leadership, it's not about a named title. It's not about a role. It's about the individual responsibility people have with the experience they provide with the people next to them, even if their influence is only on that person who happens to be next door to them in the open plan office on a Thursday. Then you've got this shift as well, and 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 Mikhail talked about this as well, the, the shift to hub working, the idea you're not just going to be in London, in Manchester. So the idea that people are going to be remote spoke working with occasional forays into an office for really important stuff that can be best done in, in a physical space. One of the other changes is this idea of the homogenous culture that people expect to have for large organizations, which does not happen. You know, uh, Mikhail, you were in Singapore. It, the, even if you were with SAP before that, the culture in Singapore would have been a, a variation of it's same language, different dialect, if you like. And that's the shift that's happening. So these are the ways that, that the world is changing. And that's before you even start talking about the expectations of colleagues. We've done a piece of research asking people what they expect of their leaders now. And it's not because of the pandemic, it's because of the promises that are made on the website, right? So it's don't, don't think this is because people got soft during the pandemic, it isn't. People started reading people's websites and saying, why is my experience not this? Emotional literacy, not warmth and softness, I am never accused of that. Emotional literacy is the idea that I see my colleagues as human beings, not just people at my convenience, not just role descriptions at my convenience, but people with lives outside of this space. Approachability. This is not about being available all the time. That's impossible. But it's about the idea that when people have something important that must be told, you are a person they will tell it to. It's a business prerogative. Trust, a coaching approach, supportive, empowering, recognition and that's not talking about reward that's the idea that people recognize that some of our colleagues do the most dull and underappreciated work and occasionally hearing from somebody that they notice you and what you've done is good is important these are the kind of multiple kinds of shifts that are happening in the workplace i think it's brilliant the opportunity for high performance the opportunity to bring in talent that might have been prohibited because of a commute in the past is amazing, but leaders are going to have to rise to this challenge. John, I um, I watched a phenomenal TED talk by Boston Consulting Group on the 2030 workforce crisis, and they interviewed over 200,000 job seekers to say, what's important to you, right? What do you want? And the top four were all cultural. Pay was like eighth or ninth, and the top one was recognition. So a thank you really, really, really does matter. Mikhail, we touched on the cultural transformation that that you kicked off, you're leading across SAP UK and Ireland. We're 12 months into that. Could you just explain what that transformation is intending to do? What does it entail and your thoughts that sit behind that? But fundamentally, and I think John touched on it, about trust, right? So the culture of trust is what allows you to deliver on promises. I'd like to believe that I deliver on my promises, but I'm very aware that I don't and that I have failings, right? 
And you talked about psychological safety, Michael. So in which environment can I be myself and admit that I have shortcomings, biases, and need to improve and truly embrace the growth that journey that we need to be on? As individualists, if you don't do this as an individual, how can you possibly get there as a group? So when I started, and I was very inspired by Dr. Francis Frey from Harvard. She worked at Uber. She's trying to restore trust with the trust triangle, which is based on three elements, authenticity, logic, and empathy, right? So each of us has what she says, a natural one you gravitate to. And each of us on the moments of pressure has one wobble that you automatically default to. And if you just reflect on that and you go examples, so I'm a pretty high energy person. I'm an action-oriented leader, so I'm prone to skip past things and judge too fast, right? So what I wanted to do, and, and so people call me then authentic nonetheless, but at the same time, inside myself, I think I'm just a person that's driven by logic. And I had to work on empathy. My self-image with my own staff is not that I lack empathy, but I had to work my darndest with my brain to genuinely embrace empathy. So this, what I'm trying to tell you is, as a leader, you need to be vulnerable, you need to be self-aware, and you need to continuously grow. It's very easy for me to say that coming into a new team, hoping that they reciprocate. It's not going to get reciprocated unless you make an effort, right? Uh, this is another frame, and I forget the, the person's name. I'm very sorry. He was a, a free previous bomb mining. Uh, uh, he detonated bombs uh, from the UK. I forget his name. He's a wonderful man. And he said, culture is uh, three things, right? You need to get the systems right. You need to get the symbols right. And you get the behaviors right. Now, symbols is very easy. Pick something, put it on your website, say you're going to do it. Whether you do it is another thing. The system needs to support it. The behavior needs to reciprocate. So I decided that in the UK, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. This is pretty clear. I need to win over a group of people. There's two and a half thousand people in the UK, two and a half thousand in Ireland. There's no way that I can reach more than 50 people anytime soon. So the first job for me was, who are the 50 people? So I decided that if I go with the authenticity, vulnerability, discover yourself, discover your strengths as a communication language, I need to find the people that are most interested in that. And as opposed to defining who they are, I asked people who they should be, and they nominated a couple of individuals to me very fast. And I asked them, can you please find 50 what I call multipliers? Now, multipliers is a concept that exists in management books for quite some time. I, I think Liz Wiseman has written a book about it. But what it fundamentally means is you're trying to find the people that influence others positively, constructively. They challenge, they debate. They don't need to be the highest performers that have the best results. But they do need to be credible in their communities and they influence others. So. I then took the risk of believing that those 50 people proposed to me were the multipliers that I needed. I don't know if they are. I'm going to find out. It's the risk I take, right? And then we started to organize sessions because I thought if I reach 50, after that, 50 can reach 500. After 500, we can reach 2,500, et cetera, right? So go in waves. Now, what is it that we focused on? 
systems and symbols, like I said, those are the, frankly the ones that you can use your management skills for, but behaviors is so hard to tackle. So we decided to pick some bad behaviors that we would not tolerate anymore. And we had examples in our organization of some salespeople who were extremely successful doing deals, but the customer didn't like them and their colleagues didn't like them. How can that be, right? And how can you tolerate that, by the way? So we decided to flip it around. What are the behaviors that we want? And then we did workshops on a very regular basis on giving and receiving feedback. And by the way, everybody should be reading John's book, The Promises of Giants, because the methodology about feedback is all in there, John. And you can comment on that, but it's wonderful, right? And, and the other things we did was listening actively, not just speaking to be the smartest in the room, but listening actively and empathizing back. And by the way, the pandemic has created much more empathy in our teams. And I'm not just in our teams, I think globally, that's, that's one of the most beneficial things we've received. Make a long story short, we put together a program where these people felt acknowledged, recognized, important beyond the goals of their jobs. So we're trying to create culture change through behaviors, which will mean it will take three to five years. This is not going to be done anytime soon. No, but I think it's what it was really refreshing. And I'm part of the program, Mikel, and delighted to be part of it. And, and it's a theme that has really resonated throughout all of the podcast episodes is that the basic fundamentals really, really matter to every single individual. Clarity, standards, feedback, listening to me in the moment, having empathy. John, if I, if I may, I've got a ton of questions I'm going to ask you both around you know, driving this and making it happen. So Mikel touched upon giving and receiving feedback as, as a starter. John, you talk about the effective feedback model in your book. Can you share some of your thoughts about how do you embed a feedback culture? How do you accelerate that? How do you do it? What are your thoughts? So uh, at APS Intelligence, we have an incredibly robust feedback model. I say this and smile as I do so because it really is robust and it's habitual. So there's, there's a number of ways that you can do this. And one of them is to make feedback easier by creating a standard set of questions. And that's what we've done. So after everything, for example, when this is published, when this, this is going out, my members of my team will, will listen to it and not because I make them, but they will listen to it. And afterwards, we have these lunch and learn sessions, and sometimes they're for people to try out new masterclass ideas and see what people think. And sometimes they're to talk about things we've read in a journal article somewhere that we think are interesting, because again, we talked about already, this learning is appropriate. But sometimes it's to reflect back on things that we've done. They're going to ask four questions. What went well? Even better if. Learnings. What have we learned from this? And actions, what are we taking forward? What do we need to share with other people? And that just happens after everything. And, and it frees you from having to get really creative around how you give your feedback, or at least how you start that feedback process. But that's, that's not it alone, because feedback is one of those things that people, I think people love the idea, is it called radical candor? And that's because it's deeply selfish. The idea, I'm just telling you the truth. It's said, no, that's not the point, because we all know that it can hurt to hear even the most thoughtful critique, but it 
need not be cruel. That's one of the rules in the effective feedback model. Feedback is never cruel. It need not be cruel. And every manager, every person who's giving feedback should know that if it is cruel, that's a choice. Either to be thoughtless in your preparation or malicious in intent. Because even the most difficult feedback can be delivered in a way that makes it clear that you believe in the potential of the individual, makes it clear that you are saying this in order for them to develop, not to wound them. And it can be candid and thoughtful at the same time. And these are some of the rules that we place around feedback so that you can be given the toughest possible feedback and not wound people on purpose. It'll still hurt to hear things. So my team today, one of my teams today has, they have made an error and I believe it to be an error of carelessness, which is to me frustrating. And I was looking at a shared document and I saw this error immediately. And I tell you what, I, I mean, I'm a black person and I flushed red. I was so furious. And I nearly wrote a comment. In fact, I wrote the comment and I realized that I was writing the second half of this comment in all caps, the passive aggressive virtual shout. And I looked at it and I deleted it. And I had a really robust conversation with their manager about how this needs to change. And when I do have the conversation, it's going to be using the, the effective feedback model to make sure that I don't do harm to people who I'm pretty sure didn't make the mistake to piss me off. <laughs> I love that. Sorry for laughing. Sorry for laughing. But um, that's, the, that's it. When you look at your effective model, and I'm a great believer in intent and impact. And if it doesn't help the individual, it's not feedback. That's uh, my simple principle I've followed for 20 years. Simon, if I can just come to you for just uh, just a second to get your thoughts. Uh, yeah, and uh, looking at the model as well, I think the other um, encouragement you give in the book is who benefits from the feedback. You know, it, it's not looking about giving the feedback because you feel better. It's, it's about really reflecting on who's going to actually benefit from me saying anything, if something. And I thought that was very powerful. Uh, and that that moment of self-reflection before giving the feedback about thinking about why, I think is really, really important. So again, just wanted to add that to, to the mix. I think that's a really, really good point because that's exactly why I deleted the, the comment I was going to make. It was all about me venting my spleen. It was about me wanting to feel better in that moment. And, that, and the way that many of us feel better is by wounding others. So, so here's here's the thing. The first thing to me that that helps you restrain yourself is to recognize your power. Leaders, uh, especially in a contemporary world, we we've got this weird idea that embracing power is a bad thing. It's it's usually because we've had leaders who did embrace power in a way that was completely corrupt and negative. But when you forget that you're there's nothing more dangerous than a giant who doesn't know they're a giant. And I know that I'm a giant, actually, physically, as well as metaphorically speaking, in the context of my organization. And all I need to do is just remind myself of that. And if I scream, the earth shakes and people feel unsafe. And, you know, people who feel unsafe, they don't work well. So I want to win. It's really self-interest that drives that, right? That's one way. The other thing is that we've got to have a way to debrief. So I, in the course of this conversation, this all happened today, the course of this irritation that's occurred to me today, I called uh, the CEO of my company 
uh, who's also my best friend since I was 11. And I said, I don't need you to do anything with this. This can't go any further. But I need to yell in your presence about something. And, and that was it. And that's what I did. I just had a debriefing arrangement with somebody so that it just allowed me to move on and be calm and sanguine for the rest of the day. Great advice. Brilliant advice. <laughs> um, let's just conscious of the time and Simon will tell me off as he always does. I have a number of questions about the multipliers because I actually think this is this is crucial to the future as I see it. Mikkel, you said this was about people in their communities. They didn't have to be the highest performers, but they they were credible. They were trusted. People valued them. And, and you said, you know, multipliers is not a new concept necessarily. But equally, though, I've seen organizations try this and it's failed. And one of the things that hasn't happened is, is that people haven't felt comfortable to lean in, to really lean in and, and find their voice. And, and so I'm, I'm going to ask you both for your observations on that. So, Mikhail, if I can start with you, how do we encourage people to lean in and have a voice? A couple of things. I think in companies like SAP, and I've worked in Microsoft before as well, and I've worked in startup companies, we all love to identify the top performers, recognize them, create communities for them, special leadership attention, uh, earlier promotion, you name it, right? People feel very good when they're included in that limited circle. If you don't treat those circles well over time, they get pretty disenfranchised because they feel that they are supposed to receive an experience commensurate with their high performance. And so that's quite an interesting negative side to an elite group, if you think about it. And that's exactly what I didn't want to have when I thought about driving culture change. Like, this is not about that. This is about humans interacting with humans. And when, when we have a mission statement that says, we help the world run better and improve people's lives, well, do we? I care. I really, as a person, I love that mission statement. So what am I doing to help people improve their lives? And not just to select 20% of the top of the pyramid, but the 70% or 80% that we truly need to reach. So that has to be a shared mindset for all people in the multiplier category. Or And by the way, that is a, a label that goes away at some point because it's just bringing a group together as a starting point. At the end, the end goal is to reach all people with the workshops about giving, receiving feedback, active listening, uh, empathy, setting performance goals clearly, transparently. And one of my mantras is empowerment comes with accountability, by the way. There's a lot to be said for it, Michael, but the most important thing is it is not an exclusive community. It's a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And John, during the Olympics, you did a phenomenal video. And this goes back to this relativity of success for me. Because you were opening people's eyes to the fact that one individual getting to the start line in an event could have been the most momentous thing they've achieved in their life. Yet the next person, actually, that's the given. <laughs> the gold is their version of that relativity. And I really see this with this concept of a multiplier. That, and this is the premise of, every, of, of the inner giant, right? I was very lucky, about 20 odd years ago, to be in Harrogate for the CIPD conference, and Charles Handy was the keynote. And he talked about the golden seed that exists within us all, you know, but we don't always realize it. We need somebody else to help us to see it and, and to help us. This, for me, is all part of this leaning in. 
How does somebody get comfortable with, yes, you have a voice, you have brilliance, what, you, what success is to you may be very different, but it's still success. Can I just ask you, John, just to share some of your thoughts around that? So uh, I, was, I was having to quickly write things down because I have goldfish memory. Um, so, uh, oh, I should tell you what the T-shirt says first. It says accountability is sexy. Uh, I bought three. I bought three of these T-shirts so that for the majority of the week I can wear it because I just think there's a bunch of leaders that I talk to on a regular basis who need to know. Uh, uh, you know, accountability is sexy. It makes things. It makes the world work. I tell you what. Anyway, in answer to your question. There are three elements here that I think are important. The first is this. People don't just decide for themselves whether they think they are worthy. People think that our idea of ourselves is something that percolates inside of us. And we, at some point in our 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, know that we're good. But actually, that's not true. We've known since 1902, a researcher, a psychologist called Charles Cooley, who talked about the looking glass self that our identity, our sense of worth and importance and value is made up um, by looking at the way other people look at you. You see yourselves reflected in the faces of people. And the more senior the person, the bigger that reflection, the bigger the mirror. So every time a leader looks at you and kind of gives that rise of the eyebrow, like this person's can't do this. Every time a person looks around a room and looks over you and picks somebody else, you are telling that person how capable they are and how capable you think they are becomes a determinant in how capable they actually are. So you want people to be capable and feel capable. It's us that are a part of that. The second part of this is if you want to hear what people have to say, disclosure is earned. You earn the right to hear what people have to say, whether it's about themselves, you know, like people coming out or people telling you about their pack background or past. When people talk to you about themselves, it is always a statement about the person who's listening. It's always, people mistake disclosure. They think it's a statement about the person who's talking, but it's not. It's a statement about the person who's listening. Because what you're saying when you tell somebody something that is about you, and maybe not super private or, or, or uh, special, but cherished nonetheless, you are saying, I have seen you. I have watched how you operate when nobody is watching. I have watched how you've reacted in meetings, in the minutiae, when you're furious and when you're thrilled. And I've decided that you're the kind of person who deserves to know this. When you look at organizations and their surveys and you see these large group of people who are prefer not to say, large groups of people who don't even contribute, it is a statement about the organization. You haven't earned the right to know. Last thing, for those of you listening who might be the kind of people who aren't quite sure that you've got anything to offer, can I just say, I normally swear when I say this, but I won't do that today for your benefit. Humility is BS. I need you all to embrace the idea that humility is a lie. I know that some people have been raised that way, and it's, I'm not trying to critique your parents, but I'm telling you in this world, humility, I'm not talking about going to arrogance or bragging. But if I ask Mikhail, if I say to him, can you do this? And if Mikhail says yes, and that's a lie, he can't do it. He doesn't have that capability or skill. We would frown upon that, wouldn't we? Because we would say we shouldn't lie about skills that you don't have. Well, 
humility is putting a lot of people in a position where they are still lying. They are lying about skills that they do have. And in this world, we need you to embrace the things that you're great at in, in the specifics, right? Don't just say, I'm great at writing. I'm great at code. I'm great at in the minutia. Think about what you're great at and own it. I've been getting people that I'm working with and coaching to give me their top 10 list. Because when you know what you're great at, not only does it give you the reward that you deserve to really acknowledge what you've worked on, in terms of your organization, you suddenly have this list of things that can help you contribute. I love that. John, I'm very privileged to be a father of um, twin girls, 12. They'll be 13 on their next birthday. And I'm trying my damnedest and constantly reminding them of what they are great at and never, ever to forget it because it's so easy in this world and one of my daughters in particular will just go, yeah, but I'm not really that good, am I? And, and it's tough. That's a real challenge, you know, and it's that getting that real support. Oh, that's, that, that's great advice. And, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm just uber passionate about the fact that, and, and I remember watching a video and you were talking about the relativity of success and I'm sitting there, I was nodding and I'm going, yeah, this is really important, right? Everybody has the ability to contribute. Everybody has something to offer. The collective brilliance needs to shine, but it has to be earned. We have to create the conditions. We have to create the climate. We have to make it safe. We need to earn the trust, all of these things. And that's the bedrock of culture. And I think, Mikhail, you were saying about the time span. This isn't just going to be an event. It's not going to be one and done. It's not going to click the fingers and it's going to happen. This is going to take effort, real effort. And, you know, Simon, you know, we, we were talking with David Williams and we were also talking with Professor Damien Hughes. And, and he was, we were talking to him about how do you, you know, really retain and, uh, and drive this culture. And, you know, it's all about the conditions. It's all about understanding the characters, all about understanding what people bring to the party. Um, but one of his interesting takeaways, and I think it resonates perfectly with today, is kindness. That was one of his top, top tips. Kindness to yourself and kindness to others. So that brings me to our last question, because I think Simon is going to literally stop the recording in two seconds. So we always ask our guests, if they may, to share some wisdom, a tip, a hint, a piece of advice. But if there's one thing you would like people just to take away, to reflect on, to think about, you know, what, what, would, that, what would that tip or advice be? Mikel, if I can start with you. So anybody that I've ever mentored knows this or who works for me, I always talk about strengths, just like John just said. Own what you're great at. Formulate it objectively. If you do not know how to do that, there are many tools out there. Gallup Strengths Finder, I found 20 years ago. It's a great starting point. It's not the only tool. There's many other things. But formulate it and speak about it confidently. Own what you're great at is one of the most important things for your happiness rather than focusing on all the negativity around you. I think number two, check your ego at the door no matter what you do. I have one, you have one. Just own it. Two, deal with it. You know, Recognize it. We won't really get a whole lot of progress unless we check our ego at the door. And I have a big one. I can tell you that. And I get bumped into, th I bump into things all the time. And it's not fun when a customer points out that I'm trying to be right. And oops, I shouldn't try to be right. I should try to get what I want so that you get what you want, right? Um, that's a big one. And the third I would say is um, make things happen for your audiences. Who do you work for? Who do you make things happen for? Your loved ones, your family, your friends? Same for your customers, your partners, your employees. Be very aware of that 
and put your maximum effort in. Some people call it servant leadership. I don't know what you call it, but for me, it's about deliver on your promises to whom you commit them to. Wonderful, wonderful. Mikel, thank you very much. John, if I may, to close this out, what would be some of your tips, hints, and wisdom or advice? The first is probably this, embrace friction. Many people love, the reason homogeny is so alluring, being surrounded by people who are like you is so alluring, is because when something appears, a challenge or an opportunity, everybody in the room says the same answer. And so everybody feels really validated and clever. And that's great if everybody has the perspective required to solve the problem or to take advantage of the opportunity. But increasingly, that's not the case. So what we have to do is recognize that we need to embrace the friction that comes with difference. My business partner is an extroverted thinker. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? It drives me insane. It's been driving me insane for 40 years. And you know what? Together, his, my introverted thinking style and his extroverted thinking style means we have less blind spots, and that's what's helping us thrive. The fact that we have other people with different cognitive styles is the same. So embrace that. Recognize the value of it beyond the kind of simple convenience of always feeling right. And then the last one is, I've been telling everybody this, everything I talk about in terms of leadership and culture is energy expensive. It will cost you to be a great leader and it is entirely worth it. But in order to do that, you must fill your cup. You can't pour from an empty cup. You can't deliver the very best. Bite your tongue and breathe, as Mikhail and I were talking about when those difficult things happen. You can't do it if you're at the end of your tether. So you must, must, must find ways to recuperate. And that is not crashing at eight o'clock after a customary argument with your partner, falling asleep on the couch. It is doing actual things that will allow you to rejuvenate yourself. If you don't do those things, you aren't gonna be the kind of leader that people need in the future. It's not selfish, it's self-care. Wonderful. John, Mikhail, I cannot thank you enough being guests this has been an amazing conversation um i i i've been laughing I, i've i've been told off that i actively listen so i've been on containing my laughter but so rich um thank you so much we really really do appreciate it thank you wow what a conversation and i know we say it we say it all the time um but wow i absolutely loved that i was smiling nodding laughing internally um, just a phenomenal insights, brilliant insights um, from both John and Mikel. I'm so thrilled that we, we were able to get them onto the podcast and be guests today. I've got so many takeaways, but I'm going to start with you if I can, Simon. Um, what were some of your highlights? Well, I love the conversations. Um, like yourself, uh, I'm listening, chortling along to myself. I, I had to use my mute button quite a lot just to stop those chortles coming across on the sound quality. Um, very rich conversations from both and um, really great privilege to have them both on the on the podcast. I actually really enjoyed the opening. You know, the, the, the way we the, the, the episode opened out in terms of John's initial challenge about this rushing back to the office. And what does that really mean? Why are we rushing back? Um, and are we missing the point a little bit? Which was a, you know, a great way of framing that. But then Mikhail, I think, then built upon that to say, 
why does the office actually matter? Which I, I think was equally a, a very valid point. So uh, I think that that just set the conversation going with, in a really great way. But one thing that really you know, jumped out to me and has personal resonance for me was it becomes a point where you just want to vent uh, uh, rather than then to go straight into a feedback session with an individual. Um, and, and, you know, John talked about a debrief buddy. Uh, I, I thought that was really powerful. You know, find somebody that you can just talk to, talk it through, get it off your chest, and then reflect on how you want to give that feedback. It's, yeah, it's absolutely a fantastic idea. Something we do, I think, and you and I work you know, really well at that. You know, it's just that ability to just talk it through uh, and reflect a little bit before then giving a more measured piece of feedback. And I think that's a super piece of advice. Yeah, it, it sort of feeds into the nuances, doesn't it? I mean, I think what was clear today is that both Mikel and, and obviously John have got their own principles and their own philosophies and 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 what how that sort of underpins their thinking and underpins their behaviour. And, you know, Mikel was talking today about authenticity and trust and empathy and that triangle. You know, that that's not easy. That's that's quite difficult. But then he also talked about, you know, with 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 great empowerment comes accountability. And of course, you know, our viewers won't listeners won't be able to have seen John's t-shirt, you know. But John was very clear, you know, accountability is sexy, right? It's 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 magic. It's absolutely magic. So th- those were really great insights into the things that really influence whether or not culture is a great culture, a healthy culture, a thriving culture, or it isn't. You know, we did talk about, obviously, feedback and, at length today. But I think my last one was, was around that, and we've heard it before, embrace friction, embrace difference, look for it, you know, because actually that's where the great learning is going to come from. And we did talk, didn't we, about individuals today as multipliers leaning in. We've got a big part to play to enable those individuals to have that voice. And, uh, you know, I I think there was just some great uh, insights and tips around that. This stuff really matters. We've said it from the beginning. You know, these human factors are getting more complex, more profound. And and there's there's a lot of work to be done. And I think both Mikel and John recognize that. So I think a great start to the new year. Yeah, we look forward to um, to the next episode, which equally i think is going to be a mind-blowing uh, episode so um yeah looking forward to it but until then goodbye <laughs>